Maria Chappelle Nadal did not have the easiest pathway in serving 16 years in the Missouri House and Senate. The University City Democrat often was at the center of some of the state's biggest political and policy conflicts. Now that her time in Jefferson City has come to an end, Chappelle Nadal is joining us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to reflect on her eventful legislative career. And she discussed how her successors can succeed in moving the policy needle forward. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me as my special guest today, she is the former state senator for the 14th District and also a former member of the Missouri House of Representatives. Our guest today is Maria Chappelle Nadal. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is part of our kind of unofficial series of exit interviews with people that are leaving or have left the Missouri General Assembly, uh, unlike uh, Senator Scott Sifton or House Speaker uh, Elijah Har, we're also going to have Senator Jamil Nasheed on later. You've already left because you have joined the staff of Councilwoman and former Senator Rita Days, who was actually your predecessor in the Missouri Senate. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of this time talking about county politics. I'm going to have like Councilwoman Days on and she could speak for herself. But I do want to ask like, why you decided to to make the the leap to being a, a staffer for Senator Days? Well, I have to tell you, Jason, first of all, thank you so much for allowing me to do this exit interview with you. But, you know, I've been tracking St. Louis County politics for a very long time. Um, you know, prior to COVID even starting, I was watching the council meetings when COVID did start and was really aggressive and we all had to stay in our homes. Um, you know, the only entertainment that I got was watching the county council meetings. And so I got into the politics of all of that from the outside. And, um, you know, then I started watching all the committee meetings. And so it was just intriguing to me to be part of that process um, from the outside and now on the inside. And furthermore, Rita Days is an amazing woman. She's phenomenal. She is someone who has a command of the issues. Um, and she is someone who, um, you know, I look towards for advice, um, but also on good policy issues. I know that she'll always make the right decisions. It's kind of interesting that you are back in being a staffer because you started off your political career being a staffer for Lieutenant Governor Joe Maxwell and then became a legislator. So in some ways, it's a full circle moment for you. There aren't that many people in the term limited era that complete that 16 year cycle. I'm sure you we're going to get more specific, but I'm sure I want to give you a chance to, for some general reflections on 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 that on that uh, accomplishment. Well, first of all, it is an awesome experience to have 
Um, and I didn't know that I was going to do 16 years in the General Assembly. When I ran for office the first time, it was an open seat. Um, my uh, predecessor there was Betty Thompson, and it was an open seat. And if you recall, we had the um, the marriage ban amendment on the the ballot, the same election. And so it was one of those elections where um, you had the church ladies out who didn't believe that that two people of the same sex should get married. And I had to put my foot down and say and let everyone know how much I support same sex marriage. And you look fast forward today um, where we are and and things are much better. They're not where they should be, but we're in a much better place than where we were before. But serving 16 years um, is amazing. It's also an honor. And I'm very grateful to the people who elected me, um, not only in the Senate, not only in the House, but also multiple terms as a school board member in University City. We're talking about the full circle aspect again. Like one of the issues that was a real dividing line within the African-American political community when you started was education. Because I when I and I was I was an observer of this because I lived in Columbia at the time. But it seemed like the biggest disagreement between people like you and Rita Days and Maida Coleman and people like Rodney Hubbard and Ted Hoskins and TDL Amin was education and support for private schools and support for charter schools. And what's interesting is we seem to be having that conversation again, because I think the legislature is going to make an attempt to expand charter schools again. And you see on Twitter this really big division among Democrats on that issue. And you know the reason why um, I've, I've felt the way that I have on issues dealing with education. One, um, growing up in University City, I was lucky to have the special school district because I have a speech impediment. Um, and it's, you know, you don't always hear it, but I can tell you on Saturday, I had a, a rough time doing my work um, talking to some folks because my speech impediment was just going off every two minutes, you know. Um, and so from that perspective, I always had a deep concern for kids getting um the resources that they need because of my own experience, which I'm really proud of. I was able to get through all that and still get a college education, but 90% of the people who I have served don't get that opportunity. Um, and so that's when I, I was just very passionate about kids and also being part of the DSEG program as well. You know, I'm a recipient of that. Um, I am a, a proud Greyhound. I went to Clayton High School. Uh, and that is a sacrifice and a choice that, that my parent made. Um, and it gave me a great opportunity to succeed. Um, and I've been on both sides of the education issue. At the very beginning, we were dealing with tax credits, taking revenue from the state and redistributing them, uh, this revenue to private schools. And I fought that really hard. There were all these education groups from throughout the country who were coming into Missouri, who were putting money, even the Cokes, um, you know, Amway, the Amway folks. So we were able to fight the, the scholarship legislation in the early days when I was in the House. 
And then when I got to the Senate, I mean, what was always kind of what percolating in the background was the Wellston School District. Um, it had been failing. I think you had Charles Brown, Dr. Brown um, in Wellston as the superintendent from the state at that time. Then you had a failed district, Wellston going into Normandy, and then Normandy was failing. But here's the deal. Normandy had been provisional for 20 plus years. And so I said, when I got to the Senate, I said, let me re just really look at this right now, because we've been going through this process of reaccrediting these school districts and not making a difference whatsoever. And I think Chris Nicastro was the education leader at that point in time. And I said, wait a minute now, if, if a child, is it really fair for a child who is fundamentally not getting served the way that they need to educationally so that they can compete because this is a competing society that we're in. You know, what are the options that they're given? So I looked up the statutes. I, I you know, worked really hard and diligently on this. I think um, 2012, 13, 14, um, 15, and was able to deliver a really detailed policy that was supported on both sides. I knew the transfer policy better than anyone. And I can tell you being in a room as a black woman, let me, this is awesome. Being in a room as a black woman with all these white men and I'm explaining to them how the statutes work and how important this policy is. Um, that's what I live for is being, being able to explain, metabolize information and then articulate it. And then people are coming to me and saying, now, what does this mean? What does that mean? But I was able to take control of the Senate Education Committee with my policy, get it through the Senate, get it through the House. And it was delivered to the governor's desk twice, even though he vetoed it. You know, being able to get through that, th that politics, but my fundamental question was, and I'm just going to say it plain, because y'all know me for being plain. I'm just going to say it plain. I thought, I think it is a travesty for children to basically be on a, an educational plantation where they're not receiving the education that they deserve. I think it's a crime. And there were people who were willing to do absolutely anything to keep these kids who deserve so much better. And I'm not talking about like shifting all the resources from a public school, but I was talking about kids who are in buildings that were unaccredited and giving them an opportunity, balancing that off with the economical needs of a school district, um, balancing that off with some of the charter school language that exists. It was a balancing act, the legislation that I moved forward. Um, you know, I, I was not originally for choice. Um, and I can argue on both sides, frankly, because I killed choice bills and I promoted choice bills. Um, and my position actually evolved over time. 
Um, I still think it's a, a travesty that the state is not doing a better job with school districts that are provisionally accredited or unaccredited. They just keep passing the buck and their kids who are failed. Um, and that's that's what's sad because it's going to cost us on the other side. The, the other note, there are a lot of interesting things about your tenure, if I could use that euphemism. The one thing that I think was particularly notable, with the exception of 2014, where you had a writing candidate, but not a serious writing candidate, every election that you ran in, you had a serious Democratic primary opponent. And including after 2018, where you ran into a ton of controversy because of your comments on Facebook about Donald Trump, which I'm not trying to skirt over that issue. We did an entire podcast on that. You can listen to it. We're not going to relitigate everything here. You know, what was it? Do you think you came off as a better legislator because you had to constantly earn your right back? I I want you to talk about that because there's a lot of people in very Democratic districts that just get reelected with marginal or no opposition. And I want you to explain the difference of being in that ultra competitive environment. It's like fighting like a tiger, you know, um, it, it keeps you trained and it keeps you hungry and motivated. Every single time I ran for office, it was an interview on behalf of the people who were voting in those elections. And so you had to fight with all your power to get elected and do the grunt work. And i Frankly, you know, because I get to be really open and honest now, but frankly, I think a lot of the people who don't have primaries don't know what the fight is like. And they take that experience of not having to fight like I've had to fight in my primaries. And, um, you know, they, they don't have that experience of like doing whatever it takes to get elected. Um, and then they bring that into the legislature and it's like... The, you know, only when you're tested. So Jesse Jackson said this. He said, you can only have a testimony when you've been tested. And when you've not ever been tested, you don't know what your your propensity is. You don't know what you're able to do because you haven't been tested in that way. And um, when I was reelected in 2018, um, the former congressman put someone up against me. And that's fine because I did the work. And people have a huge respect for you when you're knocking on those doors, when it's 105 degrees outside um, and you're sweating. And this last year, I will tell you the most beautiful part of the last time I ran in 2018 is I was hot and sweaty. And I, I went through that, that entire experience from 2017. And people said, girl, give me a hug. Give me a hug. And I said, no, no, no. You know, I'm like sweaty. And I, I know they said, girl, give me a hug. You've gone through so much and I'm voting for you. I don't like what people did to you. And I'm, I'm just making sure that you know that we care about you. So that's, that's what I love. I love the fact that you have to you have to show people that you're hungry. That's the awesomeness of having a challenge is that you are pushed um, beyond what you think your limits are. And when you don't have that experience, um, you have to learn by fire in a different way. You know, um, you mentioned uh, the former congressman who I'm assuming you're talking about former Congressman Lacey Clay. I think a lot of your public career, not a lot of it, but some of it was defined by what I would consider, I don't want to call it a rivalry, but, you know, 
You two clearly didn't get along. You ran against each other. You often ha supported candidates that ran against each other. Um, and you did lose to him. That was the only election that you lost. And I, I, we've talked about the elections that you won. What did you learn from the election that you lost? Because sometimes people take away things from a bad experience like that, and it does provide some lessons for them that may be instructive. Maybe it did. It was a punch. That, that was the only punch I ever had. <laughs> that was the only punch politically I've ever had. And um, the unique thing about what happened afterwards um, is I, I did settle down and it was, you know, going through Ferguson and then going through 2017, dealing with critical issues such as um, Normandy students being able to transfer out, dealing with radioactive waste across North County and in West County, having to deal um, with, with Ferguson and what continues to happen in Ferguson. All of those things, um, you know, I had to focus on what I wanted to do at that point when I lost. And it calmed me down because I knew that my time was, was very short at that point. Um, and it's also the time I, I met my boyfriend and that kind of calmed me down too, because I, I realized that, um, you know, my, whatever I do in public impacts him as well. And, and I, so that's when I started settling down, which was kind of obvious to my neighbors and others, um, because I, I recognized that, that I'm part of a team now and um, I couldn't be as, as forceful and aggressive as I was before. I actually want to talk about the filibusters a little bit, because I think that was also another thing that you were known for. Um, one of the people who I, I follow on Twitter, Jennifer Drake, I'm not sure if you know her, but she, I know her, her parents, too. She mentioned after an article I wrote about the three people that were trying to replace you that all the hand wringing about your filibustering and your outspokenness was kind of laughable when all three of the people trying to replace you were going to talk about how how much they were going to filibuster. And that was kind of like your legacy was uh, making the filibuster not a negative thing, but actually a potent tool to actually get things done. I want you to elaborate on that because uh, you definitely filibustered a lot, but you also filibustered strategically. I did. I did. And my first filibuster, wow, I studied for like six weeks. And every single weekend I came home and it was the, the Workforce Discrimination Act. And at the time, the, the Republicans were trying to go backwards to like 1965. And so every weekend I was studying with the team of attorneys and going through different cases. And by the time we didn't know when that bill was going to come up. Um, but I had been practicing for practicing. And so um, I don't know if it's even appropriate to, to tell your audience how I prepared for my first big filibuster. Um, but I will tell you, um, if I ever see anyone face to face, I'll tell you, but I will tell you that I, I put myself in a position where I could stand up um, for I think it was 10 hours and 45 minutes um, in 2011, maybe February in 2011 for, for that filibuster. And I think it was on the thing that you, you're about to mention, it was on topic. 
Now, it was all on top. And see, that's what the rule is. See, here's the thing. There are a lot of people who filibuster by reading the Bible or they'll read, um, you know, books or whatever, which I have done. You know, I read some some Huey Newton. I read some 50 Cent. Um, I did. But my filibusters were on subject. And, um, you know, I remember the case that I, I, you know, almost came to tears on um, in that first filibuster was a teenager in Kansas City who was working at a grocery store who was sexually harassed multiple times and that they were trying to get that case dismissed. And that poor teenager was complaining to their managers and that company didn't do anything about it. So I like really felt that. I really felt that, you know, if you're being sexually harassed or harassed in any kind of way that you should be able to get a full recovery through the legal system. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why I just stood up because there are some really unfair cases that were out there and the Republicans were trying to go backwards. We'll be right back after this quick break with former Senator and former State Representative Maria Chappelle Nadal. And we're back on Politically Speaking with former Senator and former State Representative Maria Chappelle Nadal. I want to talk about Ferguson because that's a, that's a that is a series of events that has affected your life. It's affected my life because I reported on it. And even though that you were involved in many high profile issues involving education, nuclear waste, redistricting, I think it, when, when people look back at the Maria Chappelle Nadal history book, they're going to look back at your advocacy and activism during Ferguson as one of the prime moments of your political career. Let me tell you, when I was elected, I was the comfortable candidate, the comfortable black candidate. And it's sad to say, but I mean, this is St. Louis and St. Louis has a history. Um, we have an environment that still displays racism and classism ongoing. And when I got to Ferguson, what I saw were grown men crying, mothers who were crying, you know, on one side of, of, you know, the parking lot in Ferguson at the police station, you had these police officers um, who some had despair in their eyes too. And I will never forget uh, the, the Sunday, it was August 10th, and you had a crowd of people building up um, right at the police station and you had all these police officers and they were in a face-off. And so I was like that person standing in the gap saying, no, please don't get close. Please don't do anything. I was holding gr uh, grown men cry. You know, I, I remember this little girl who had the sign that said, God is love. Um, I, there's another man who just got out of jail. Um, and he, I mean, it was just, it was a different call. And the call was to have compassion. Um, it was to be a translator. It was to be a teacher. It was to be a mother. It was to be a sister. And those are the roles that I took on that were absolutely necessary, especially in the communication, whether it was communicating what people were feeling on the streets to um, the establishment, which included the governor at that time, um, because a lot of his policies included might makes right 
um, which is unfortunate. It was like, you know, hurting people into obedience. And I thought that was wrong because these were some legitimate concerns. Ferguson is a former sundown town. Um, Florissant is a former sundown town. And you have this, this guy who, you know, lives in my neighborhood, the former governor, <laughs> who um, was basically saying it's okay to have these, these, um, you know, these, these trucks and these long, I've never seen guns as long as I did. I remember on August 9th, you know, when Mike Brown was killed and there were dogs out and what we were visualizing was what we saw in black and white pictures from the sixties. And I never thought that I would be part of that, but the calling during the Ferguson uprising was very different as a legislator. I had to tell them, look, you can't just tell people you do this, you do that without understanding their perspective and where they're coming from. And so there was a sensitivity. Um, some was political, some was convenient, um, some was actually genuine. And, um, you know, my focus during Ferguson was to bring people together um, so that we can get through our challenges um, and have some policy changes. We have not done what we need to. And that was going to be my next question, because one of the things that I think a lot of people harp on is that other states after Michael Brown did far more than Missouri ended up doing. We could talk about Senate Bill 5 for hours, but some people would say that, um, and including me, I'm not going to use the some might say, I'm going to use, I will say that I don't think Missouri did enough from a policy standpoint in reaction to this. You're absolutely right. It was a Band-Aid from the very beginning, even from the corporate leaders at that time. The approach has not been comprehensive. I mean, all you have to do is fast forward six years and look at COVID, um, you know, the the relief that African-Americans and people in North County have gotten versus other areas. It can, the cycle continues. The cycle of racism is real. It continues. And the people who are part of the problem should feel ashamed of themselves because they know that it takes more work. It takes more policy uh, change and advocacy. I mean, it's, it, we used to talk about what systemic racism was by a book or um, institutional racism by a book. And we had like a, a definition, but we're living institutional racism. We're living systemic racism. And that's what's scary. And here's the trauma that comes behind it. There's so many people who feel battered by the system because it's constantly pounding at them and it's like pointing at them nonstop. You know, you better get in your place. You better get in your place. You better get in your place. And that's what the system in St. Louis has created to the point where people feel traumatized and they feel numb and they, they feel beaten down because they're not given a fair shake. Um, and that's why I say, you know, they're, Part of systemic racism are are some of those corporate leaders who pick and choose who's going to be a success and who is not going to be a success. Um, and it's really sad. I've I've been witness to that. And, um, you know, we've we've got to do better. But, um, you know, I, I agree with some of the columns that have been coming out that, you know, we're not where we need to be in terms of um, 
you know, refocusing our efforts on equity issues mm -hmm. in St. Louis. From a political standpoint, though, it's hard to say that, like, nothing has changed in St. Louis proper since Ferguson, given that there are these people that were protesting in Ferguson who have actually been elected to offices, you know, St. Louis Board of Aldermen, State Representative, Congress now with Cori Bush, also Bruce Franks as well. There's great fanfare, but they run into some of these same brick walls when it comes to actually translating their activism into policy without without talking about specific people, because obviously Cori Bush has been in office for a day, so she has time to actually, you know, follow through on some of that. Uh, how how do you how do you kind of how do you see people avoiding the not being able to fulfill the expectations that I just talked about when they're actually elected? When I was elected, I had a, a group of people who served as my mentors. And I had Margaret Domley, I had um, Barbara Frazier, <laughs> I was thinking of Barb Frazier, I had uh, Rita Days and Harriet Woods, you know, I was her last mentee. Can you imagine that? I was Harriet's last mentee. And um, so they helped me um, be able to go through this journey and, and, and really be able to function, um, and get things done. Amber Boykins, I mean, a, a, um, Juanita Head Walton. So there were a group of women who were constantly telling me, okay, this is how you do this. This is how you do that. And I, for this group of people, because there's so many new people and the legislature is younger. And, you know, I think I was elected when I was 28 the first time. And, you know, you, because you have so many people who are new, they are learning the process. I am and glad that I've been part of helping to elect some of these folks from the Ferguson uprising. Um, one of my mentees is a current legislator, um, Kevin uh, Windham, and I'm so proud of him. I'm very proud of him at this point. And, and I will tell you, with a lot of effort and diligence and hard work, I do believe that the newcomers will have the uh, the bandwidth that's needed um, to function in this legislature. The only thing that I'm, I'm worried about is that you have more lobbyists who know the system. Um, and I'm worried about uh, the, the current legislature um, members of the current legislature asking the right questions because it's very, very, very easy um, to be directed in a way um, that you don't have the full picture of what's happening. And um, I don't want that to happen to a lot of these great new legislators who are out there who don't know like what's happening. So I, I expect to be um, like former senators. I expect to be listening to um, the conversations that are had in both chambers. And um, I, I am always available to answer questions and give direction, but there is a difference. I mean, because of, of limits, because of term limits, you have a, a different um, cadre of people, so. Right, and I, I was gonna, that was gonna be my next question about kind of the next generation of leadership, some of whom you supported financially, some of which you, you just talked about now you support 
from a uh, morals perspective. And I think we had this conversation offline, but I do kind of want to bring it up in the forefront about where you see the future of leadership in North St. Louis County and St. Louis County in particular. Like, who's going to who's going to lead this next generation? Like, and what do you think it's going to take to be successful leaders? Because anyone could be elected to something. It's another thing to be successful. You're right. Well, here's I'll answer the last question first. Uh, it is very necessary for black leaders to be working together. And because they, there are always people lurking in the dark to divide the black community today, right now, this moment, this very moment, there are people who are operating in the darkness to ensure that black leaders and the community are not working side by side. That's what they want. They want a distraction. They want a division. Um, and it is incumbent upon this group of people um, in the legislature to have open communication, know that it's okay to disagree on some issues because we are still diverse as black people. We are diverse. Um, and um, just have a focus on what is important. Now, I will tell you in about four years, you are definitely going to see a leadership swing um, in the black community in North County. And it's, it, I mean, it happens a little bit over a decade or, or two, there's a shift. There will be, there will be another shift. Um, and we don't know what the changes are going to be in terms of the uh, redistricting. We don't know the changes of what the municipalities will look like. We don't know if, if St. Louis City and County are going to be one. So there are a lot of things that we it's important for Black leaders to work as one unit on issues that we all agree on. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, that should be uplifting the conditions, social and economic and, and educational, uplifting the these issues so that we can move forward as um, you know, our region and as African-Americans. Well, Senator, I wanna thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How can people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? Because even though you're out of office, you still have uh, opinions on things that people may want to absorb through social media. Yes, I am at Maria Chappelle in, and um, I am not on Twitter as much as I used to be because I am in a different position, but um, I do share some of my opinions from time to time on Twitter and that's where you can find me. Thank you very much. Until next time. So long.